This is Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. I'm your host, Matt Den. Welcome to Attorney General Insights. I'm Matt Den, a partner with the DLA Piper Law Firm and the former Attorney General of Delaware. And joining us today via telephone because of the COVID-19 pandemic is Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch. Attorney General Frosch, thank you very much for making the time for us today during what is, I'm sure, an incredibly busy time for you and for your office. Matt, it's a pleasure. And yes, things are a little crazy. Attorney General Frosch is serving his second term as Maryland's elected attorney general. He was reelected in 2018 with almost 65 percent of the vote. Prior to his election as attorney general in 2014, he had served for 28 years in the Maryland General Assembly, where he was noted for legislation he helped pass relating to, among other things, environmental protection and gun safety. As Maryland's attorney general, he describes himself as the people's lawyer, and his focus has been on keeping communities safe, protecting the environment, and protecting consumers from fraud. I can tell you, having served at the same time as him, that he is also widely respected by his peers in other states as someone who, across party lines, is conscientious and thoughtful, and those are qualities that seem particularly important these days. So, General, first and most importantly, how are you and your family doing? Well, first, Matt, thank you very much for the kind words. I thought you were harder to fool, but I appreciate it. (laughs) We're doing well. I have two adult daughters. My only concern is one of them is living on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, and we keep begging her to come home, but she and her boyfriend are stuck there. So, Lexi, if you can hear this, You and Ben should come down here and stay with us. Otherwise, things are good. My wife and I are healthy. And unlike many, many Americans and Marylanders, I still have a job. And I'm very grateful for that. Right. Well, outside of your home, it's great to hear that you're doing well. In terms of your office, let me ask you about how the COVID-19 crisis has just sort of generally impacted the functioning of your office. I think people sometimes don't fully appreciate in terms of the attorney general job, that aside from the many, many substantive legal issues you have to deal with, you're also the manager of what is effectively a really, really big law firm, probably one of the biggest in the state, with all the management challenges and HR challenges and others that come with that. Just in terms of managing such a big office, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to deal with as a result of the pandemic? As you know, Matt, our responsibilities are the complete array of state issues, agencies, and problems. And every single thing that the state has to do to address this crisis, we play a role in. We give advice to all of the executive departments, most notably the Department of Health in this one and the Department of Labor. So we're down in the nitty gritty trying to help people, but trying to give legal advice that allows the state government to respond to the crisis. And of course, as you say, this is one of the biggest law firms in the state. Although DLA has a large office here, we face all the issues that the other state agencies have. The governor imposed a hiring freeze a couple of days ago, and we believe that we're going to be facing budget cuts in the very near future. And I'm sure you experienced this as the Delaware Attorney General, but our office is under-resourced and understaffed. It's true of state government pretty much across the board. We feel it especially keenly in ours. And trying to deal with the extra work that this 
crisis has brought and perhaps having to do it with reduced resources is going to be a terrible strain on our office. And then, of course, there's the management issue of people working from home. Most of our attorneys and some of our key administrative staff have state phones and state laptops, but many don't. And trying to keep them engaged and able to do their work is challenging. And trying to keep up people's morale is also a challenge. So it's a really difficult time. In terms of folks working from home, are all of your folks working remotely now? Is the office basically closed? The office is closed. We have people who go in, pick up and sort the mail and deliver that. But otherwise, just about everybody else is working from home. Now, sometimes people have to go in and pick up a file or access their computer. They should be able to do most of the access remotely, but occasionally they need to go in. But as a general rule, everyone's out. Everyone's working from home. Some of our administrative staff are on administrative leave because they just can't do their work remotely. And I suppose you're having to deal with the same constellation of issues that other managers are in terms of kids being home and school happening in the house and that sort of thing as well. Absolutely. I mean, everyone in our office faces one challenge or another in that respect. The ones who don't have kids or family at home are isolated sometimes unhappily, and everyone else has to deal with their children's agenda or their spouse's agenda or roommate's agenda and taking care of the dog and the cat. It's a different working environment from the one that most of us are used to. Let me ask you about one issue that's come up from this pandemic that was a very early focus for you and a lot of the other state attorneys general, which was price gouging particularly for items that are related to the pandemic, like personal protective equipment. I saw that just yesterday you announced that you had sent out, I think, over 100 cease and desist letters. In general, how is the process of trying to police that going, and what are some of the initial challenges that you're facing in trying to address price gouging? Yeah, Matt, Maryland didn't have a price gouging law, even in emergencies, until a couple of weeks ago. Our legislature on the day it adjourned passed a law authorizing the governor to prohibit price gouging based on an executive order. And he promulgated an executive order about a week later. And we are charged with enforcing that order. And as you say, we've gotten hundreds of complaints. We've issued more than a hundred cease and desist letters, warning letters. And interestingly, Mostly the response has been good. The people who've been accused of price gouging either respond to us, give us an explanation, or say, it's not us, it's the distributor. The few that don't respond, we follow up with an enforcement letter. And because the executive order says that price gouging is increasing your profit by more than 10%, It's not something you can identify just from the increase in price. So we normally have about 60 volunteers who respond to consumer complaints in our office, and they each spend at least 10 hours a week working on it. They're terrific folks, and they are totally off the team at the moment. 
We don't have cell phones or computers for them. And our consumer unit doesn't have enough people to just handle these hundreds of new complaints. So we've asked around the office, we have about 500 attorneys, we've asked around the office for folks who might be willing to volunteer to field these complaints. And we got a lot of responses, more than 50. So we're doling these out to people across the office, and that's the only way we're able to keep up with it. There are a few violators who appear to us to have committed serious violations of the executive order, and those will be pursued in administrative proceedings by our regular consumer staff, but we're handling the rest in large part from folks all over the office. Let me ask you about the mechanics of some of this. I remember when you and I attended our first meeting as newly elected attorney generals back in 2014, we heard from some of our peers about the sometimes difficult relationship between attorney generals and governors. Right. Because attorney generals are sometimes the people who have to tell governors that they can't do things that they want to do or vice versa. I think that crises like this one where you have so many new things coming up every day can make those relationships either better or worse. So how's all that going? So Governor Hogan in Maryland is a Republican. I'm a Democrat. And we have very different views of how government should function and what it should do. And we have, in general, a good working relationship. In other words, our job is to give him advice. We try to tell him how he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish, whether we agree with it or not. I think, however, that this crisis has been a model of good relationships between attorneys general and governors. I think Governor Hogan has done a good job. He got on this early, and he's been, I think, sure-footed in the moves that he has made. And there is a daily issue that has to be addressed. Sometimes there are dozens of issues each day, but every day brings a new set of challenges Our team is working very closely with his Office of Legal Counsel, and so far it's worked, I think, very well. How about in terms of other state attorneys general? Is there a lot of coordination on these pandemic issues, or are the issues that come up so state-specific that you're pretty much having to do your own thing? There have been a number of areas in which attorneys general have coordinated their responses. And it's mostly writing to the federal government and saying, please do this, please do that. As you know, there started in the Obama presidency to be kind of a divergence between Democratic and Republican attorneys general. Republican attorneys general sued the Obama administration frequently to try to stop it from accomplishing its agenda. And in fact, the challenges to the Affordable Care Act continue. And the reverse started to happen when Donald Trump became president. But those political challenges, I think, have driven a bit of a wedge between Democratic and Republican attorneys general. We overcome that divergence in many, many areas. The opioid crisis is a good example. And in fact, There are many multi-state issues that we continue to work on both sides of the aisle, but I don't think that the coronavirus crisis has either 
improved or driven a wider wedge between the folks. It's pretty much been a state-specific response. I wanted to ask you about a letter. I thought it was a very bold letter that you wrote a couple of weeks ago to the governor telling him that you thought the state should, and I'm quoting from the letter, pursue a broader and faster release of a larger swath of inmates to try to avoid COVID-19 infections, both among inmates and among correctional officers. And you suggested to him that he work with the parole commission to release some inmates who might pose very little risk to public safety, but whose continued incarceration would pose a serious risk to public health. And I saw that just yesterday, if not all, a pretty significant part of Maryland's federal congressional delegation sent a similar request to the governor and actually invoked your letter. So first, what motivated you to write that letter a couple weeks ago? Well, Matt, we've seen that folks in close confinement are extraordinarily vulnerable to an outbreak of this deadly virus. We've had nursing homes in Maryland that have been devastated by it, literally decimated. And the folks in jail, the folks in prison are at grave risk because it's not possible to socially distance yourself. Folks are usually sharing cells and the spaces are small. When they're not in their cells, they congregate together in relatively close conditions. And all it takes is one of these viruses for one person, a correctional officer or inmate, to get the virus and it can spread like wildfire through these institutions. So in Maryland, the Department of Public Safety and Corrections has done a good job in trying to address the risks within the institutions. But the best possible scenario is to get people who are not a threat to themselves, not a threat to society, and get them out. And it's difficult. I think there are many advocates who disagree with this, but I think that these releases have to be done on an individualized basis. I don't think you can just say, okay, everybody over 60, you're out. Folks need to have a place to go. And many of the folks who are incarcerated in our state and elsewhere don't have a place to go. The prison or the jail is where they live. They may not get along with or have a family anymore. And you can't just turn them loose. They're just as likely to be a danger to others on the outside if they can't isolate as they are in the prison or the jail. So I think it's an extraordinarily important issue. I don't think it can be solved by a single wave of a magic wand, but it is something that needs to be addressed and addressed immediately. Do you think there's any prospect of that happening? Yes. I hope that the governor and his team are going to be burning through the applications as fast as they can. I know there have been a number of releases. The pace is still a little slow, but the work order is really a tough one. Let me ask you a question or two, just as someone who has been in state government for a while. You and I have both been around state government for a reasonably long time. We were both in government on 9-11. I was working for yep. a governor. You were a state legislator. We were both elected officials when the markets crashed back in 2008, 2009. From where you sit 
as someone who has seen some of these things happen over time, how does where we are today compare to these other crises that we've been through? I think those other crises look like a bump in the road compared to this one. There'll be way more deaths as a result of this than there will have been from any of the others, and perhaps more than at any time in our nation's history. And look, I'm no investment advisor, so everybody, you make your own decisions or get some better advice than mine. But to me, it looks like this is going to be a hard, long-term slog to get back to anything approaching normal. I think state governments are going to be especially challenged, unlike any other crisis that you and I have seen, either as public officials or in our lifetime. We're going to face deficits. Maryland is required by its constitution to balance its budget every year. We can't borrow to make it up. We have a rainy day fund, which was over a billion dollars. But I think before very long, it will be exhausted. Revenues will plummet. People will need aid. So while revenue is plummeting because people are out of work, people who are out of work need unemployment assistance. They're going to need perhaps food stamps, SNAP benefits, Medicaid benefits. So I don't see us coming back to work, stepping on the gas for quite some time. So I think this is going to have long lasting effects and they're going to be severe and it's going to take a real adjustment to figure out how to get through it. You mentioned a little earlier that you had been involved in some of the litigation around the Affordable Care Act. So I think that attorneys general have become more expert maybe than they used to had to have been in healthcare issues. Do you think that this pandemic and the ability of the medical community to respond to it, do you think that's going to have any long-term impact on the public's overall view of our healthcare system and our systems for trying to ensure that people have access to healthcare? Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope it brings home the importance of universal coverage so that everybody in our society has the ability to get health care, to protect themselves and to protect the rest of us. It's important from an economic standpoint. If we have people who are sick, dying, infecting others who can't get medical attention, that's not good from an economic standpoint, and it's catastrophic from a human and uh, public health perspective. So Maryland has a strong health benefit exchange, and our open enrollment was supposed to have ended on April 15th. It's been extended to July 15th. And in the short run, there are 21,000 people who have recently obtained coverage just in the past few weeks. But there are still thousands of Marylanders who don't have coverage, and we're trying to do everything we can to remind them, sign up. Unless you've had the coronavirus and survived, it ain't over for you. You've got to be able to get medical care. And I think this impacts minority communities the hardest. It impacts low-income people the hardest, and it's, I think, just vitally important that everyone in our society get the medical care that they need. 
Last question for you. That's maybe just a little broader version of what I had asked you about comparing this situation to others. On top of the huge financial challenges that we're going to face, how do you see things changing more generally when we hopefully come out of all this? On the public health front, obviously, hopefully at least we're going to be listening to the experts and conducting things the way that we ought to. But as a community, as a people, how do you think this is likely to change us? It's really hard to know. What I hope for is that the lesson that we're all in it together will prevail and predominate. The Republican attorneys general are still trying to kill the Affordable Care Act, the cases before the Supreme Court. If that happens, I think it'll be catastrophic for our nation. But I hope that the general public learns the lesson that we need each other, that we need to take care of each other, that if there's somebody with the coronavirus and that person is untreated, uncared for, it's a danger to everybody else. And it's as important for that person to have medical care as it is for me and my family to have medical care because they're a threat to me if nothing else. Even if I care nothing about that person, it's still important to me that they be taken care of. Of course, I want for them everything that I want for my family. And I hope that we emerge from this a kinder, gentler nation. I think that's perhaps the best outcome that we could hope for. But we still see, and it terrifies me, a hatred that comes from this. Naming the virus, the Chinese virus, and suggesting that certain ethnicities and races are responsible for its outbreak is exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing. And I hope that's a lesson that our nation learns as well. Well, General, I am, number one, very grateful for your time. And number two, thankful to know that there are people who, as I'd said at the beginning, thoughtful in positions like yours at a time like this. So I wish you and your wife the best, and I hope that your daughter will hear your message (laughs) in New York. I just really appreciate you spending this time with us. Well, I'm glad to have any excuse to spend time with you. And again, I appreciate the kind words. And it's one thing for my daughter to hear the message. It's quite another for her to heed it. So let's hope for that. Great. But I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. This is your host, Matt Den. Thanks very much for listening.